Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. Hello, all you beautiful souls. Thank you for showing up. I do appreciate it. If you listened to you yesterday's show, that was just me doing a monologue. I do those every now and then, but this is my favorite. When we actually are in studio, face-to-face, and I have with me today one of my brothers, John Pudar. Thanks for being here, brother. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure being here. I appreciate you being here and, uh, and making the trip. Let's talk about your service. Let's start there. Okay. All righty. So uh, why in the hell did you decide to join the Army? Uh, It was a long time ago, back in 1986, uh, living in Windsor, Ontario. Um, It was an option to either go work in the factories or go and explore the world, and I opted (laughs) to go and explore the world. So I uh, joined in 1986 uh, with the Armored Corps and wound up in the Strathconas. Spent 25 years with them and loved every minute of it. 25 years. What was your first tour? Uh, first tour was 1988. We went to Cyprus. Okay, so it's like a tour, but different. It was. Yeah, it was <laughs> I think we all refer to it as the best six-month weekend we ever had. Yeah. yeah. Any uh, Was there any hairy things that happened in Cyprus in 88? There was a fair bit of uh, activity on that particular tour. Uh, what do you mean by activity? What well, was going on in Cyprus? At the time, it was pretty peaceful on the Green Line. Um, but in Nicosia itself, there was a couple of uh, local riots that occurred down around the Lidra Palace. And one particular one was um, a conflict over a young girl who had gone missing. And turns out she wound up falling in love with a Turkish soldier, crossed over the border, and of course, the one side went uh, a little bit off the wall, and there was about 1,000, maybe 1,500 people that decided to riot um, and protest. God, it's just like Helen of Troy. Uh, It's the same story. It was almost identical. It was an incredible incredible experience doing the riot control, and... um, it was an eye-opener for sure uh, about what the future was going to So work. just something like that was enough to set off a riot. So that tells me that they're always kettling. Like, like the, the pressure is always high. They're, they're at, uh, what, what is the boiling point? 111 degrees or something like that? So they're always at 110. Oh, pretty close, yeah. You yeah, know, because if just one person going missing is enough for 1,000 people to riot the streets. So the tension is always there. What's the history of that, like, in, in, in Cyprus? Like, why are they so mad at each other? Where does that even come from? Oh, it's uh, the whole Greek, the Greek and Turkish um, uh, desire to control that island. Are they, are they arguing about who has the best coffee? <laughs> Turkish coffee is pretty damn good, the but Turkish I, coffee so is the Greek coffee, yeah, you know? That was, uh, <clears throat> that was a regular, that was a regular uh, staple in Bosnia when we were there. It was, uh, the Turkish coffee is fantastic. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, but 
No, in Cyprus, <clears throat> Cyprus was a different tour altogether. Um, it was pretty much winding down by the time we were there, and the incidents were far and few between. But well, when they when did, was the last Cyprus tour? Like well, ninety two ish, maybe. I th- yeah, I believe it was nineteen ninety two. Um, that was the year that I actually got out of the military for a couple of years, and. Um, yeah, I believe it was 92, and at that point, uh, Bosnia had started ramping up. But Cyprus, that was like a 30-year mission. I believe so, yeah. Or maybe even more. Yeah. Like 30 years, and that's where the birth of peacekeeping was, right? Well, for Canada, I believe it was, yeah. I mean, there was a Sinai, um, there, was a, there was a number of tours before that, but en masse, I think that was, the, that was our biggest deployment uh, since Korea. Yeah. And where else were we at that, at that time? Like if you started in 86, so, I mean, there wasn't a lot of, in those days, right? Most of the soldiers were peacetime soldiers. And yes, yeah. uh, if they had a tour, it was a Cyprus one, but there's the odd one other than that, like Golan Heights. Golan, the Sinai. Um, Sinai Peninsula, yeah. Yeah, there was probably about a half dozen tours, uh, different locations that uh, Canadians were serving in at that point. Um, but, but most of them pretty tame. Very, very, yeah, and very small, very small uh, deployments. Like, you know, you might have uh, an operations officer uh, working in a small location. There was a number There was a number of places where guys were going, but no, nothing en masse. So Cyprus was the big one for us. But in the early days of Cyprus, uh, you must have heard stories of some pretty good scraps. Like, it wasn't always a beach vacation. Oh, no, no. Um, you, you hear stories going through, and I mean, how much validity you can give to those stories, I'm not 100% sure. Um, based off my experience, I can see how things can get very hairy there very quickly. Yeah. yeah there was a couple standoffs that we had to deal with, you know, with uh, <clears throat> Greek soldiers, Turk soldiers, um, you know, pointing weapons at each other and trying to defuse those situations. Um, in some situations closer to the city in Nicosia, you had, you had uh, opposing forces that were within 20 meters of each other, um, you know, staring each other down uh, on a day-to-day basis. I spent most of my tour out there in the uh, rural sector. So the... Um, uh, the combatants at that point were spread out a little bit further, um, all within all within rifle shot of each other, uh, but you know within a couple hundred meters. Whereas in the city, it was a much different situation. Uh, they could throw stones at each other. Yeah, so it was uh, it made for a little bit more tension in in uh, in the city core. I know in the seventies, Syria was uh, a bit of an ugly tour. A buddy of mine was there, and uh, he's about seventy four now. So. There were the there was the odd hairy tour, but um, nothing really until Yugoslavia. Do, do you remember well, where, where you were when, like the workup? Because I was in basic training when when the conversation started. Then I was in battle school when people were like, "Hey, there's this thing over in Yugoslavia, you know, yeah. uh, we might be going over there." I actually do remember that very well. And. After Cyprus, um, I had spent a few more years serving with the Strathconas, and I saw—I basically saw the future um, where there wasn't going to be a lot of deployment, especially for an armored soldier. Uh, it wasn't a realistic expectation to be going overseas anywhere, and I decided to. Boy, were you wrong! Oh, was I ever wrong? <laughs> so in 1992, I decided to get out. And just as I uh, released, that's when the talk of Bosnia started up. And um, Slovenia and Croatia had seceded. Um, and then basically the war started in Bosnia. And 
when that occurred, I tried to get back in. And back in 1992, 93, um, they weren't accepting applications anymore. Uh, we had been completely shut down. It was what they called the dark and the dark and dirty nineties. Um, so trying to get back in was almost an impossibility. The dark decade. I was there. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, the commander, uh, of the Strathcona's at the time, uh, was given his mission and it was to take the regiment over in 1994, uh, as a battle group. So he was going to be the battle group commander. Now, when he was a squadron commander at the time, um, years before that, I was his driver and he realized, and he knew that I spoke the Croatian language. So he approached me and said, if you'd be interested in coming back and coming back as my driver and study, uh, he put some. Stanley puts them, yeah. <laughs> For those that don't know, stop or you shoot, or I'll st- or I'll shoot. Stop or I know I'll the shoot, words yeah. that matter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ruki <yeah. Uvis. laughs> hands up, hands up, yeah. But yeah, he gave me an opportunity to come back in, um, and that was to a little closer. That was just basically to join the reserves and get on a on a Class B contract and go over and serve. And he gave me the opportunity to swear back in while I was over there, so I didn't. I uh, chose to serve out uh, the next uh, basically 19 years of my life uh, with the regiment. And after that uh, 94 tour, I wound up there again in 97, again in 2000. And um, so for that 94 tour, yeah. you know, uh, you had a Cypress under your belt, but that didn't really count for where you're about to go. It was black and white. It what, was black and white. What do you mean? Um, Cypress was basically. From my perspective, it was sustaining an, an economic stability for that island. Um, and though there was a few incidents, there was nothing in comparison to what Bosnia was like in 1994. Um, the things that we were witnessing there were like nothing anybody had ever experienced uh, since basically Korea. So I'll just do some translation here for the audience. For those that don't know, the war was 92 to 95. Um, at the time that I was there and then John was there uh, as a takeover tour, um, there were two operations happening at the same time, both under the UN flag. So, uh, or was yours NATO? Uh, we were UN for 94. Okay. So we, you were still no date, um, UN on the Bosnian side. Correct. So, uh, we were representing the United Nations. It, mine was Roto 4, so you, you were Roto 5. Yes. And there were two operations. Op Harmony was mine. Op Cavalier was yours. Correct. And um, there were summer and winter tours. I was on the summer tour. So you relieved us uh, for the winter tour, but on the Bosnian side. Correct. And the war was 92 to 95. After 95, I think, is when they switched to a NATO. Um, uh, So... Trade, traded the blue hats for green hats and changed the rules of engagement so you could actually shoot back a little bit. And uh, not quite as uh, much as you should be able to, but um, still better than what we experienced wearing blue hats. Right. You know, we weren't just blue bait, which is exactly what we were. We were moving targets in our big white carriers and our blue hats. You know, uh, still surprised that I <laughs> didn't test that Kevlar helmet out to see if it actually will hold out a bullet. I kept expecting one to skip off the top of my pumpkin. But um, tell me about landing. Did you land in Zagreb? Uh, no, we wound up uh, landing in Split. 
And from Split, we... So uh, you landed in a nice spot anyway. Oh, yeah, it was beautiful, yeah. But it, it didn't take more than five minutes out of Split before you saw the war for the first time. Uh, it was a bit It was a bit more than that, but... Um, you mean the bomb buildings and stuff like that, your first rubble village? Tell me, tell me about that. Tell me about leaving Split, because I remember what it was like when I left Zagreb. And when we got to the edge, I was like, holy fuck, this ain't Wade right. You know, so... <laughs> True enough, yeah. So tell me about that moment for you when it hit you like holy shit this ain't wainwright um it was when we crossed the border from croatia into into bosnia um it was interesting for me did you cross at kanin or yeah in kanin yeah yeah we it was interesting for me because um a root bluebird uh, if you're not familiar with uh, bluebird was the um what they call the main road that led from uh croatia into uh into bosnia okay and root bluebird basically went right through my family's uh, village in Croatia. Which was which? It's called Trilja. It's spelled T-R-I-L-J. Uh, it's one of those weird uh, L-J combinations. Was it was that close to Kanin or the Kovitz? Um, it was, it was, um, it was just about uh, 20, 30 kilometers from the border of Bosnia. So close to Kanin. It's close to Kanin, yeah. Okay. And um, once we crossed <laughs> over... Um, Coming out, coming out of coming out of split and going through Croatia, there was not really a whole lot of destruction and damage. But once you crossed into Bosnia, you can you can see it right away. Uh, I remember the very first day we were uh, driving out, we came across a uh, burning truck on the side of the road, and it's right there. It's like okay, this isn't normal. And we found out very shortly after it was that truck was mortared, uh, like not even a half an hour before we before we showed up. Yeah. Um, so there was activity going on all around us um, while we were trying to drive through and get into Visoko. And um, it was just, it was a surreal experience seeing all of this for the first time. You hear about it, you serve, and you see the pictures, you watch the movies, you see everything. But until you see it firsthand and you you see the despair in the in the people's faces as you're driving by. Yeah. Um, it, 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 that's when it kind of hits you. Um, that's when it hit me for sure. Yeah. What was your first experience? I can say these because we have these commonalities, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, what was your first experience where the impact on the kids, the local kids, where that hit you? Mm. I got a couple. Yeah, that um, basically it was the very first time we stopped. Um because no matter where you go, the kids are automatically, they run right up to you. Yeah, uh, hoping for some chocolate bars. The lunch bucket, right? Give me, you got lunch bucket, lunch bucket. And uh, <laughs> that was that was a common term. Is that, so they want your bagged lunch, right? And um, I, it was just anything. Um, everywhere you stopped, those kids would come running out of the woodwork. And they were everywhere. No matter where you were, you could be in the middle of nowhere. There'd be children somewhere uh, looking for something. And we we experienced them on a daily basis there. Uh, one in particular, um, that I'll never forget was a young, a young 16 year old boy. Um, we were actually probably about a month or two into the tour at this point, And there was a, um, a 500 pound bomb that somebody took a couple BM 21 rockets and strapped it basically with duct tape and yeah, they strapped four BM-21 rockets around this 500-pound bomb and just basically ignited this thing and launched it towards Visoko. Um, it crashed into the hills above the camp. And when we went to investigate this, um, me and my boss were up there looking, you know, looking for some sort of evidence of these, of these rockets or anything. 
and nobody's talking to us. Everybody's, you know, everybody's still pretty skeptical about what we're doing there and nobody wants to take sides. And, uh, I, uh, as I'm looking around, I see them, I see my boss talking with the interpreters to everybody else and having, you know, being able to speak the language. I look at this one young boy and I was like, there's our ticket right there. This is the kid. So I go over and talk to him and he's shocked that I can actually understand what he's saying and I can speak the <laughs> language. And then I kind of warm up to him and I said, Hey, listen, man, I said, look, we're looking for the rockets. What, what can you do for me? And he's like, Oh, well, he goes, what can you do for me? And I said, well, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do for a hobby? And he goes, I like to build models. And I said, models, what do you mean? And he goes, yeah, I like to find some styrofoam and build models that I see of the airplanes in the sky. I'm like, okay, do you got an example? And he went into the house and pulled out this, see, like an F-18 styrofoam plane that he'd built. And I looked at this, the, 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 the detail was fantastic. And I'm wow. like, just going, this is insane. I said, did you do this from pictures? And he goes, no, I just did it from looking at the planes in the sky. I said, I said, this thing probably flies, doesn't it? And he goes, oh yeah, give it a try. So I, I throw this thing and sure enough, it glided through the air like a, like a, like a paper airplane would. Wow. And I was just blown away at how this kid had done this from nothing. Yeah. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, if you can give me something from this incident with the bomb, um, I'll bring you all sorts of styrofoam. I'll bring you uh, like razor blades. I'll bring you all the tools that you need to do this, do your hobby. And he was like, oh, okay. He goes, you bring me the stuff first and I'll get you what you need. <laughs> so like, okay, smart kid. Smart kid. Yeah, this is really good. And uh, so in anyway, a long story short, uh, the next day we brought up, I brought him up a whole duffel bag full of styrofoam and markers and glue and everything else. And he was so ecstatic that he brought me the four uh, rocket motors from the, from the rockets that, uh, you know, launched this bomb into their, into their area. So we, we helped them out and we uh, brought them blankets. We brought them uh, cardboard and tape so they can tape up the windows because the bomb pretty much shattered all the windows in the, in the village and um, in the upper, upper part of the village. And he was so grateful that he, he kept on coming back to me with more and more stuff. And he wanted to bring me a, a sighting system from an artillery piece back, uh, back from the fifties. Uh, <laughs> I was like, where did you get all this stuff? And he goes, Oh my God. He goes, this stuff's lying around all over the place. I'm like, yeah. Wow. That's and it. Well, I wouldn't mind keeping that sighting system. Uh, yeah. But it was, <laughs> it was, it was seeing how this kid was living and what yeah. he was doing to entertain himself. Um, in the middle of this war zone and in the middle of all this conflict that just, that one st- st- stuck with me to this very day. Was it, did you notice the difference in their demeanor, the look in their eyes, how they behaved, uh, you know, compared to kids here? The kids. Yeah, definitely. Um, they were far more in tune with the politics of their, of their country. Mm. Um, I mean, they, a lot of the, a lot of these kids, they don't have TVs at home. They don't, uh, they don't have the same kind of lifestyle that North American, that North American kids have. So they sit around the table and they listen to the parents talk about, you know, politics. They talk about, uh, the local government. They talk about the, um, um, the religion, the religion, the different religions in a region. And I find that those kids are far more in tune, um, to what's happening in their environment than ours would be or ours are on a, on a day-to-day basis um not i wouldn't lump everybody into the same category here in canada but over there it seems like all the kids had a very similar knowledge of their environment what about their demeanor um i found them very trusting 
the younger kids, very trusting of the blue, the blue helmets and the white vehicles. Um, they were very easy to run up and, I mean, they were all desperate to, you know, for the chocolate bars, for the food, for the lunch or the sandwiches or whatever the case may be. Um, but the older kids, once you start getting into the young teens, um, they were a little bit more skeptical. They would, they would kind of keep their distance, um, and it took a little bit more to develop a relationship with those kids. Uh, but eventually, it was, it was all doable. Did you notice the difference in maturity? Oh, very much so. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to compare the kids over there to the kids over here because the experience is different. Mm-hmm. What they experience on a day-to-day basis during, during the war was horrifying. And their demeanor, of course, is going to be a far more mature, um, a far more mature outlook on things um, where essentially when you have nothing and you want to be something, you, you just look at things differently. Very differently. It was the look in their eyes that really got me. The kids weren't kids. The kids were adults. It was probably at 12, 13, they were an adult. Without a doubt. And not just an adult. They were a mature, stoic adult at 13. There was, um, at our leave center, was in Makarska. Uh, Did you have the same leave center? I've spent all of my time off in Makarska. In the Meteor Hotel? Yep. (laughs) The Meteor, yeah. It's a great spot, actually. Fantastic. I'd I'd love to go back there. Uh, Gorgeous. Uh, Makarska to to Chepi. We only drove through Split. We didn't actually spend... Did you ever go to the island of Brach? I've been to Brach. I've been to Havar. Yeah, Brach Um, is cool. Yeah. But um, we were sitting down in this one restaurant. I can see it in my head. Well, right, right on the coast of Makarska. And, um, like right by the water, uh, nice restaurant and two 15 year olds, I'm guessing 14, 15 came in, uh, ordered a beer and they were served that beer each. And it wasn't like, I have a beer. It was just like a glass of water. You know, it was, uh, they acted like adults. So they were treated like adults and they, the demeanor of these two, I'll never forget it. You know, um, they were sitting down there like they might, they might have well been 30 years old each, you know, and, and a wise 30 at, at that. And that was the um, kind of what I was digging for there when I was asking those questions to see if you had similar experiences like that. Because that really, really struck me. And the, um, the kids that would come to our gate up to the razor wire, um, <laughs> there'd be one, God, he couldn't have been more than 12, right? They always send the kids. And uh, first they're asking, um, uh, is there any work? Is there any work? Uh, and our the only guy that we had was a Polish guy. So the best that we come up with for an answer is name Anishta Robata. <laughs> you know, they're sorry, there's no work, you know. Yeah. And, um, but uh, the kid had come up about 12 years old and open up his jacket and full of grenades in there. And uh, our grenades, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so the Vandus, I think, sold them or, or, or whatever to, to these people. But, um, but the kid opens up and there's the baseball-style grenades, you know, instead of the pineapple ones. Right. And um, Pet Deutschmark, 
Pet oh, Deutschmark? Oh, my goodness. Five, five Deutschmarks. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> now, the, the, the other people, uh, I just said no. Uh, but I'm like, what else do you got? And I ended up buying um, some Croatian uh, or Serb or whatever the hell they were, uh, like leather mag pouches and, uh, and a belt, all of which I don't know where they are anymore, but I, I, I had them at the time. Right. And, um, maybe mission patches. I still got a couple in my, in my tickle trunk, <laughs> you know, a couple of shoulder patches. I don't even know what they mean, but, um, so you get those, you know, here's five Deutschmarks for this and five Deutschmarks for that. And I was tempted by the grenades, but, uh, I didn't know the color codes on the grenades. So which ones are zero fuse and which ones are delay uh, grenades? Like, right. So, well, that could be interesting, but no, 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 <laughs> no, I'm not going to buy a grenade. But, um, if they had a pistol, I would have probably given 50 Deutschmarks for a pistol, <laughs> but, um, and, and stick it in my duffel bag. But, uh, um, no, that, that didn't happen either. But yeah, 12 years old with a jacket full of grenades. The other people, they'd uh, go, oh, stay here, and they'd trade them, get a bunch of chocolate bars from the kit shop, and uh, here's some chocolate bars. Give me those grenades, because it's better we have them than you have them. You know, so some of the guys did that as well. And I recall, I do recall, um, if you recall, do you remember traveling around in some of the local towns, and you'd see um, these young teenagers, these 12, 13-year-old kids standing on the street corners selling the two-liter pop bottles full of gasoline? No, I didn't see that. I, I recall. I, I recall that uh, being a regular in all the small towns because I mean, gas wasn't a gas wasn't a, a normal commodity during the war. Yeah, uh, and to get any, you were buying it out of two liter pop bottles, and it was these kids. It was kids that were selling it at the street corners. And I recall another kid. Only uh, gasoline I saw was all the Slivovitz and Rakia. <laughs> Slivovitz and Rakia, yeah, yeah. Fruit flies floating in it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you were offered, I remember being offered a drink, uh, all the fruit flies, and the, but, you know, floating in the bottle. But I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to, I'll take a drink. <laughs> and I won't, I won't, I'll just pretend I didn't see the fruit flies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. But, uh yeah, I recall. I recall the gas, uh, the gas and the two liter bottles being sold at the street corners. And I also recall uh, talking to this one kid. Um, he would have been about fourteen years old. And I said, "So what do you do? What do you do around here?" And he, uh, you know, for re- in your time off. And he goes, oh, "I help people start their cars." I said, "What do you mean?" And he goes, "He goes, yeah, we. Well, my my father has two batteries, and when people need to start their cars, we'll take the battery over and they'll start their car and they'll go where they've got to and they come back." I said, well, where are their batteries? And I said, well, everything, a lot of that stuff was confiscated by the military. Mm. And I was like, wow, that, it, we don't think about these things back here, you know, um, having to buy gas out of a pop bottle or, uh, you know, having to depend on somebody from your town to start your car because they have a battery. Um, or commuting with a tractor. Commuting with a tractor, yeah, or a donkey in a cart. Um, yeah. The kids there have... Um, a different mindset. Uh, they're, they're expected to do certain things at certain ages there that our kids in North America really aren't um, because we have all the luxuries that we need here. They don't have them there. I mean, I remember when I was 12 years old and my father took us back to uh, Croatia to his village. It was 1979 and that's the village just outside of Kanin? Uh No, this is a different village where my father came from. Uh, the village, the town outside of Kanin was uh, where my mother was from. So what's the name of the town your dad was from? It was actually called Velic. Okay. Yeah, so... Where is it close to? Um, it's about 40 kilometers from Split. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's not too far. And I recall going there at 12 years old and seeing 
this house that they grew up in and they still lived in it and no windows, everything was shuttered. Um, well water only, no plumbing, um, no bathrooms per se. It was all outhouse. Uh, and this was 1979. Mm-hmm. Um, here in North America, we had all the, all the modern day living necessities that we could possibly imagine. And going there and seeing my grandmother for the very first time, carrying a load of lumber on her back uh, at the age of 93 so they can do the daily cooking. And I was looking at this going, my God, this is, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto, you know? That uh, picture that you just painted there, the load of lumber, um, we saw the refugee hordes. Yeah. Um, Like, uh, God, I don't know what the number would be, but a thousand people at a time uh, coming from, I don't know, I don't know where the fuck they're coming from. Where are they going? Still don't know. But I do. I know that we didn't have a camp for them, and we didn't do anything for them. All we did is uh, we ran security for them. So as the horde is going by, we're hanging around just in case somebody starts shooting at the horde. Uh, we'd shoot back at uh, whoever's shooting at them, yeah. you know. Um, and that's all. That's the best we could do. We didn't have food for them. We didn't have anything. But it would be like a thousand people at a time. I probably saw it two or three times. A thousand people, man, woman, and child, and the grandma with a giant bundle of sticks on her back. Like, huge, massive, looked like an ant carrying a leaf, you know? Massive bundle of sticks on the back of an old grandma. And uh, people holding uh, with their suitcases and from babies to to 90-year-olds and everything in between, right? And uh, the 90-year-old is probably only 60, just a hard life. But... uh, (laughs) um, uh, and and just they're just all walking for God knows how many miles from you know because you're because their town just got uh, bombed to shit and um, it was a hell of a thing to see but the the super old lady with a giant bundle of sticks on her back like looked like a Volkswagen on her back it was such like it was such a big bundle of sticks right but um, yeah those are the images but it was the helplessness. Very much so. Couldn't do fuck all to help them. Yeah. You know. I recall I recall one uh, particular mission that we were escorting a group of refugees um, back into, back from the uh, Croatian side of Bosnia into the Serbian side of Bosnia. And it was three busloads of women and children and one truck of luggage. And all it was was just these women and children trying to get back to their homes. And so we had an escort, a UN escort that was helping them get back to this location, cross the borders, get through the checkpoint, so on and so forth. And when we hit the one particular checkpoint, um, the there was a gentleman in probably in his 60s, maybe early 70s, that had tried to smuggle himself back into the Serb side. And the way he did that was he they basically crawled onto the truck and loaded all the luggage on top of him. Hmm. Now, traveling through Bosnia and trying to get through Croatia, you can probably remember that, you know, going through checkpoints, it could take minutes or it could take hours. And yeah. this particular one, every single checkpoint that they came to, everybody off the bus, everybody check your identification, Let's offload the truck. Let's make sure everything's on on on, on the legit. And anyways, long story short, once we get to the to the Serbian uh, border, 
they offload the truck. They go to check all the baggage and they find this gentleman there. Well, now we have an armed standoff. It really got ugly for a few minutes. Uh, me and my boss were there trying to um, defuse the situation and it eventually got diffused. I mean, the guy was, the guy was half dead. He was dehydrated. It was just a horrible, horrible situation for this guy. So we finally convinced, um, we finally convinced the, uh, guards to let us through and we pass through, we get this guy and I'm carrying a stretcher with my RSM at the time. And we get this guy to the hospital. And, uh, this is just the funny part of the story was the nurses that were there. The very first question was chocolate, chocolate, like they want, they were asking us for chocolates or whatever we had, anything available. Um, Cause again, these people have nothing. Right. Yeah. And we're trying to explain to them. It's like, listen, we, we got this guy here and he's dying. Like we need to get him, we need to get him uh, hydrated. And of course, so, the, so it was the trip that uh, damn near killed oh, him. Damn near killed him. Yeah. yeah. And I remember at the time I speak, speaking Croatian, it's more like Kringlish. You know, you grow up in Canada speaking Croatian. It's, partially English, partially Croatian, mm-hmm. you know, you, you bastardize words and so on and so forth. And I'm trying to, trying to pull the word out of my head for dehydration and tell these nurses, like, get this guy some help. Like he voda, needs- voda, he needs voda. So I'm, com- I'm trying to say all this kind of different stuff. And I'm like, I'm like looking at him, I'm going, oh my God. And my boss looks at me and he says, he goes, John, he goes, what's wrong? And I said, I can't think of the word for dehydration. And the nurse just looks at me. She goes, Oh, dehydration, not a problem. She takes us, she takes a intravenous uh, needle and sticks it in his arm and boom, that was all done like that. <laughs> and I forgot like dehydration is a medical term. So <laughs> it's going to be in Croatian or English either way. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it was um, seeing how, when the standoff happened, when they found this guy, it was the women and children that, um, really caught my attention because um, the soldiers from both sides were, you know, they're, they're in an armed standoff pointing guns at each other, but on the one side, they were pointing guns at the women and children and the fear and the, just the absolute demoralized look on their face, like all the things they've been through and this is how it's going to end. Yeah. That was the look I was looking at, and it was devastating seeing that. Sometimes people ask me, who were the good guys, who were the bad guys? And I say, well, what day of the week is it? <laughs> you know, it depends if it's a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Yes. And uh, what, what's your opinion? Um, nobody. Yeah, nobody. me too. Um, after, after that 94 tour, uh, it was a huge eye opener for me. And I went back to visit my father and my mother, um, in Windsor, Ontario. And my dad asked me, he says, would you like to come to the farm? And the farm is a Croatian farm where all the cronies get together. They play bocce ball, drink their beers and do whatever. And I said, yeah, not a problem, dad. And he goes, but could you do me one favor? He goes, I need you to just basically keep your opinion to yourself. He goes, I kind of know what you've seen. I kind of know what you've been through, but I really am still part of this community. So be careful what you say. And I said, yeah, no problem, dad. I completely understand. And when we were there, these gentlemen were going off about how everybody else in this, you know, in this war was wrong and how they were taking all this away from, uh, from the Croatian <laughs> people, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm just biting my tongue. I'm biting my tongue. And my father, my father finally had enough and he goes, Okay, John. He goes, say what you got to say. And I said, oh, you guys got to just shut up. And I said, you oh, don't know. Unless you're going to pack your bags and head over there and actually do the work that's expected, you shouldn't have an opinion about this because you're all wrong. Everybody's at fault there. There is no good or bad. 
it's all fault. It's all evil. What's happening over there? Yeah, evil is the right word. And the sad part is, is everybody was using religion as the fuel that I don't think God wants you to slaughter a village. Absolutely not. You know? Did you? Um, I missed it. Thank God, I didn't miss all of it, but I missed. Uh, I missed the body pits um, on Roto One. I missed that tour. But everybody on that tour, just about everybody, uh, and friends of mine were guarding the body pits. So dugouts full of corpses, yep. man, woman, and child, from babies to grandmas, uh, ladies and men, all in, all in there. Did you ever have to deal with the body pits? The body pits, no, but the body exchanges, yes. The body exchanges, um, yeah. Because of my so boss. tell people what a body exchange is. Uh, so essentially the combatants um, that have been killed in, on either side when they get collected and their bodies are brought to a, a holding area, yeah. they, the, the warring factions will negotiate and do what's called a body exchange. And they'll load up 10 bodies for 10 bodies. Uh, that way there they can do the, they can follow through with the burial rites and the, um, uh, the ceremonies required for their burials. And those were usually done um, at uh, Opipapa, and the bridge that was in between Visoko and uh, Chukarchichi. Um, yeah, probably been to about a dozen of those and witnessed Jesus. some incredible. Each one had its own, um, had its own momentum, had its own um, emotions. It was, it was just a, it was a bizarre thing. It's like a scene only- out of The Walking Dead. Uh, talked with one guy doing a body exchange, and. Uh, um, there was a bit of a slip when he came out of the truck and uh, the, the corpse kind of went splat on the ground yeah. and because uh, there was a, a slip and it was like soup, you know, because there were so many holes in this guy. And um, of course, everybody got all upset and it's like, oh, no, it wasn't on purpose. Sorry about that. But it was just like scenes out of The Walking Dead. Oh, totally. You like know. The, one, of the, one of the worst things I got to witness and I still don't know how this person functions to this day. But uh, it was on the old uh, HLVW. Um, yeah. they, so this is a big truck we're talking about. Yeah, big, the big 6x6 six six there. And, oh, uh, so I'll, I'll translate every now and then. <laughs> yeah. I uh, speak Army. Uh, you speak, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, a little closer there. But it's, uh, yeah, it's um, watching this one Canadian soldier uh, offloading the caskets from this truck. Um, some of these caskets, caskets have been buried in the ground for, you know, a period, a period of the war and they started to, they started to decompose. Like I'm talking about the caskets themselves. And when he went to pick up one, his leg went through the, uh, the roof of one of the caskets and his leg went basically into the body of another, of a cadaver. Mm -hmm. And I witnessed this and I was, oh my God, I jumped up on the truck as quickly as I could pull, helped him pull his leg out and get some lime, throw it on his leg. And this guy never missed a beat. He basically just looked at it, shook his head and carried on removing these caskets from the truck. And I sat back in complete awe going, how is this person going to function from here forward? You, you just tune it out somehow. And he did. And you know. it was like one of the, was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. On our tour, um, a lot of the guys that were there were on their third tour. Right, yes. You know, and uh, so a lot of them had either done body exchanges or guarded the body pits or um, uh, done recoveries. And uh, we were 
On our tour, we were QRF. So um, again, to translate, that's quick reaction force. So we were the guys that were on call for shit hitting the fan uh, to mount up and, and go face whatever horrible shit is going to go on. And we were also on call for over two weeks for a, for a body recovery. One of the villages, I don't even know which one, uh, but one of the villages, there was a slaughter, a bunch of bodies, and we were on call for two weeks. And we're like, uh, if we're going to do this, let's do it before they get stinky. You know, <laughs> like, can we do this sooner rather than later? And so two weeks, we were mentally preparing to go see the slaughter. And uh, and then somebody else did it. Don't know what happened or how or why. If the you know another country took over for it, another contingent, but we never ended up going. But the workup, you know, the two weeks of anticipation, like, are we doing the body recovery or are we not? Because mm. it was my platoon that was doing it. Um, and then everybody that's already done that are telling us, it's like, well, you take the Vicks vapor rub and you rub it in your nose, you know, cause you have to do that and, and wear it like a dirty Sanchez mustache. Yeah. And, um, like you need to do that. And yeah, after, um, only wear one set of clothes. And, uh, once you're done, uh, you take off that set of clothes, you shower and you burn your clothes because, uh, you can't get the stink out no matter what you do. Nope. Got to burn your clothes. And um, things like that where you have to burn your clothes after the job is done. You know, you get it. I get it. But just listening to the story, you can't get it. It's, it's difficult, yeah. Um, there's, things you, there's things you have to do that you would never even imagine having to do that stuff here. No. Um, no, and there's no, and it doesn't matter how good a writer is, you know. Um, if you read it in a book, yeah, they can paint a pretty neat picture, but no, it doesn't prepare you. It's the sights, the smells, the sounds, um, yeah, uh, the sobbing, the crying in the background. Um, when we did these bodies exchanges, it was for me, it was different because I was the uh, the battle group commander's driver in close security we followed through. So when the exchanges actually happened, we would follow, we would follow the, um, the one side's corpses back into the Serb territory where we'd take them into a warehouse and the families were there waiting. And when this was probably more disturbing than anything, but the families were so desperate and had nothing that when the corpses arrived in this warehouse, the families were allowed to go and see the, you know, their loved one, in most cases, it was going through the body to see if there's any jewelry left over mm. or anything they could salvage. Yeah. It was um, devastating seeing that. Um, and, you know, the, the sounds, the crying, the, the sobbing in the background, um, the sounds of the, the bodies being manipulated. It was just, it was a disturbing, disturbing uh, experience for sure. The, um, probably the most blatant thing that I saw was uh, <laughs> we were told, okay, you two, you're going to go do this dump run. And I'm like, oh yeah. Like the dump? Yeah, that dump. Like, oh fuck. All right. So we went to the landfill site at Packrats and um, there's already been the rumors going around about what was there. Right. You know, all the body parts and shit. And I'm like, well, I guess it's our turn. You know, uh, it's our turn and it was just two of us doing a dump run and sure as shit, 
you know, there's hands and feet, you know, all over the place. And, uh, and this one torso that I still can't remember, but I know I saw it. And my brain flipped it in real time. Like I, I'm like, Hey buddy, come look at this. It's a freaking torso. Like there's no arms, no head, no legs, just a torso and it's charred. Right. And we're like, uh, my brain flipped it in real time. No, it's a pig. Well, if it was a pig, somebody would have eaten it. Right. Yeah. You know, you don't throw away, you don't throw that away. Um, but, uh, no, it was a person, probably a teenager or, or uh, and, uh, uh, with, and that's all it was, you know, charred. Yeah, but my brain flipped it in real time. And it's like, cause I, I couldn't, my brain is like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> too much, too much, uh, too much. And, um, but my buddy's brain didn't flip it. So when we, uh, when we got back to the camp and just kind of wide eyed and shell shocked. Right. And I was like, do, do, doodly do, you know, like, nope, it was a pig, no big deal. You know, um, it was amazing. The dissonance there. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I was I was just all doodly do like not a problem like that didn't happen. My brain just blocked it out. His didn't. He was all fucked up. And um, it, but that's that was the moment though where I'm like, oh, there's the devil. Mm. There's, yes, there's the devil. There he is, right there. This is the footprints of Satan. It's it's difficult sometimes when people ask you about that particular um that particular uh war. Yeah. And like you said, you know, people ask you like who was the good guy, who was the bad guy? It's like, no. Nah, Is it a Tuesday it was, or a Wednesday? It was evil. That's, yeah. that's the only way to describe it. It, it was, was evil. And the really sad part is the vast majority of people who look at that war don't quite understand what it was about. And essentially, there's no there's no such thing as a war over religion or politics or anything like that. It's about economics. It's about mineral rights. It's about um, uh, it's about money. It's always about money. Well, and what tipped it over too? I mean, I don't know exactly what the breaking point was, but there was an economic collapse. And um, it's in every time that you see an economic collapse, so their the dinar, their dollar hyperinflated. Yeah. So. Um, when I was there, uh, they, they switched the dinar to kuna, which that means they just, it's the same thing. They just dropped off three zeros. So knock three zeros off it. But it still cost 10,000 kuna in Makarska for a slice of pizza and a can of Coke. Right. Whereas six months prior, probably would have bought you a decent used car. Yes. Right. Um, and that's, that's hyperinflation. You know, where the, the value of a, a used car in six months goes to, slice of pizza and a Coke. And um, when that happens and there's a collapse, everybody's broke. Everybody's starving. Everybody's desperate because your money can't buy anything. Your system is broken. And I, I don't know if that's what happened first to tip it over, if it started as a bar fight. Like, you know, what was, what was the first shot? You know, I don't know if anybody knows. But it ended up being a cascade of wars that left Croatia, where it started, and went across the entire region for years, including Kosovo. It was like, hey, separation, good idea. So they did it too. And, um, but no matter where you were, there's something about that fucking place where everybody was possessed by fucking demons, and they could kill children 
and mothers and do that in front of the fathers and like, uh, and there were numerous stories of that where uh, families would be slaughtered in front of the father while they was just held there watching their family getting slaughtered, you know, and uh, some of the um, walking dead, I'll call them, is the first thing that comes to mind that would be uh, walking around. Uh, did you ever hear of the Coco Stay Kid? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I never saw him, but, uh, it, you know, lots of people that did a year prior at MEDAC, uh, so the MEDAC tour in 93, where a kid had a uh, piece of shrapnel or something in his brain, and, you know, and he's just walking around saying, Coco Stay, Coco Stay, Coco yep. Stay, how are you, how are you, how are you? And uh, the Coco Stay kid, you know, with his brain damage, because he had a piece of shrapnel in his freaking skull. Or um, another fella where um, a buddy of mine told me this horrible story and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that, probably on purpose. But um, he'd be drunk and dancing like uh, every night, drunk and dancing by himself. And, um, and he shows up to this camp and he sees this guy that's been drunk and dancing every, every night and it's like, what's up with this guy? You just leave him alone. Well, what happened? Well, what I just saw, what I just said earlier, he saw uh, he was held down while his entire family was slaughtered in front of him, and and worse, first tortured, then slaughtered, and this is what's left of the man. It's not something you can recover from. No, no, he was he was done, and uh, the thing is, there's nobody who is in that war that doesn't know a dozen stories like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's insane. I remember meeting a fellow from Winnipeg. Um, have you ever heard from of Marco from Winnipeg? No. Marco from Winnipeg was a Bosnian, um, born and raised in Bosnia, uh, outside of a place called Bakavici. Uh, you've heard of Bakavici Hospital, I'm guessing. No. There's something to look into. Um, Is that Bosnia side? It was a Bosnia. It was a Bosnian um, uh, hospital that was part like a partial hospital partial mental and mental institution okay and when the oh, war I've heard of this yeah when the war started um marco had already immigrated to canada was living in winnipeg and the war had started and he was concerned about his mother so he made the trip made the effort to go back and it was a it was during the winter and he basically got to the border of croatia and bosnia and walked from the border to bakovici uh, to find out that everybody had been basically slaughtered in the village. And um, it was devastating. But in the process of doing this walk, he had gotten frostbite um, frostbite so bad that they had to amputate all of his toes on both feet and fingers on his hands. And he wound up being cared for at this hospital. And when our tour came in, we took over from the uh, Vandus that were in, in, in location. Um, I got to meet this gentleman and got to talk to him on a regular and he basically kind of told me about the stories that happened in the village and what had been happening in the hospital. And it was, uh, it was a huge eye-opener, a huge eye-opener. Um, there was uh, a couple of patients there that were on a criminally insane list for that region. Uh, one guy was, um, they equated him to the Hannibal Lecter of Bosnia. Jesus Christ. And Not surprised, though. When we were there, we, this guy was actually chained to a radiator. 
because if he was ever cut loose, uh, when the bomb started dropping in town, he escaped and was basically walking around killing people just just cause. randomly because yeah. that's what he did. Uh, they caught him, chained him up to a radiator, and basically kept throwing him some food. Um, and just seeing these things and um, experiencing this and watching the staff at the hospital trying to care for these people who couldn't care for themselves in the middle of this war was, uh, again, a huge eye-opener. Um, yeah, it's, not, <laughs> it's not what you are used to, for sure. Not all the training in the world isn't going to get prepared for these kind of things. This is the first time, John, and I'm not sure why I chose today. This is the first time I've talked about this shit on the show. Oh, okay. In 283 episodes. Uh, I haven't got into the war porn before. But sometimes it's important because I think that part of the stigma of PTSD is that it's there because we don't tell these stories. So True enough. Even though nobody can understand, if we don't at least try by telling the truth... You know, um, I think people would have a bit more empathy and understanding for how PTSD can happen and and how people can get to a state of, of overwhelm and how it's just too much. Just get a kind of a better idea about, as best as they can, what it's like to do some of the stuff that we've done. You know, um, <laughs> it's funny the things that I've blacked out um, and, and then somebody mentions it and I go, fuck, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. And that what you can forget about is incredible. Somebody brought up Chipper Lake the, the, uh, a few months back and I, I was like, what, what, what's that? And then I'm like, oh wait, yeah, no, I know what Chipper Lake is. Uh, uh, I'm not mother, familiar with that one. Motherfucker. Uh, Chipper Lake, um, I can't remember where it happened. Uh, I know, I know I didn't see it. But I, now I remember the the stories of it. So one of the, uh, next to a, there was a lake, and with a wood chipper at the edge of the lake, and they'd put the bodies into the wood chipper uh. and spray it into the lake. So the entire lake was contaminated. So they wanted to spoil the drinking water, which of course they did. Spoil the drinking water, and uh, of course the the lake would have smelt like uh, like a bait bucket, you know, because um, God knows how many bodies went into that wood chipper. Right. But my God, the people that were actually throwing the bodies into that chipper. I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, that's, that's like the Nazis throwing bodies into, into the furnaces, you know, um, only a slightly more gory, uh, but this shit happened. They were bred by evil. That's yeah. the only way to describe it. Um, I, I believe in demons because of it. You know, I believe in demons. I believe in possession because I don't want to believe that it's not existential. I want to believe that the core of a human being is good, that that isn't in us. At birth, it's not. You know? Our our actions are guided by how we are brought into this world by the by the social media that we that we view by the lessons that our parents are given us or the lessons that we're learning in school and sometimes 
it falls off the rails and it's it's it, it, the the effects are devastating i think now, maybe, maybe evil is just a lack of it's not it's not the opposite of love i think evil is complete disconnection it's it's a complete othering i agree 100% you know cuz you can't do that shit if you look at a person as a person if you see them as yourself that's uh, i think where namaste comes in you know in you i see me in me i see you and thinking that there's another and yet that's our our whole split society right uh, in politics or whatever uh, i'm not like you and you're not like me no that's not true i am like you and you are like me we just disagree on a few things but I am you and you are me. It doesn't matter if you're a liberal or a conservative or what the fuck ever. It doesn't matter. You know, we're the same. We want the same thing. We just see it differently. You know? Yep, 100%. We, we see it differently. We are not other. Uh, but political parties will use the othering so that you pick a team and so that you are sure that you're on the right fucking team. You're so certain that you're on the right team, that you're the good guy, and the other ones are the bad guys. It's not true. The bad guys are the ones telling you that the other guys are the bad guys. Exactly. Those are the bad guys. And the part that bothers me the most about what occurred in the former Yugoslavia was how it all ended. All that misery, all that evil, all that destruction, um, all in the name of economics. And essentially that's what it was because when all the treaties were signed was at a very specific moment. And that's when a small swath of the Croatian coast was fought over and secured by the, by one faction from Bosnia that essentially allowed the rest of that country not to be landlocked. And just before, like as if you're traveling the coast from Split to Dubrovnik, there's a section of land there about 10 kilometers wide that is now a Bosnian port. And without that, Bosnia, Serbia would have been landlocked because yeah. once, once Slovenia and Croatia seceded, um, it basically landlocked the rest of that country. And oddly enough, the second that piece of coast was secured, it, all the peace treaties got signed. All that slaughter to open a port. Pretty much. And they'll use every excuse on the planet. And I'm not just saying, not just saying the former Yugoslavia, but every, every warring um, entity will use various reasons why they should fight the war. But essentially, if you dig deep enough, you'll find out it's always about money. I was in a conversation with uh, Brock Blaschek the other day. You know who Brock is? I, I recognize the name, yeah. He's the guy that was at that town hall, the one, one-legged Brock. Okay. Uh, when uh, Trudeau said to him, you're asking for more than we can give right now. Yes. Famous yes. Brock. Yes. But uh, him and I talked for like three hours uh, last week. And um, one of the things that Brock said to me was that um, when Afghanistan, when he, he's, he's like me, he's got one tour, that's it. One's enough. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, when he went to Afghanistan, it was all the guys like me and you who had Yugo tours um, that uh, that gave them the ability to do the job because we had the war experience. 
and we like because you get seasoned you know we got war hard and uh where you're not flinching every time something explodes and um that was his perspective anyway that it was all all the people at the yugo tours um that were now senior and ceos by that point that uh that really uh helped and made a difference whereas on my tour it was all the juniors, privates, and corporals that had two, three tours. All the senior NCOs were, were cherry. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is real. Uh, now, when you went to Afghanistan, did you find that uh, your experience and the other people with Yugo experience that that was a big help in Afghanistan? Oh, 100%, yeah. So how, how did that translate for you? Uh, when we served in uh, the former Yugoslavia, um, like I said before, it was a huge eye opener and the, the sights, the sounds, um, the preparation, um, the orders process. I mean, you can train and train and train all you want, uh, conducting the orders process and say, this is ridiculous. Why do we need this? Why do we need so many tools in our toolbox? So well, we're, all we're going to do is advance and fight. Uh, well, no, you, you realize that all the training that we were doing, uh, and especially because of our experience in, Bo- in Bosnia or the former Yugoslavia, um, that 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 prep time and that experience and 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 seeing those sights, the sounds, the smells, the sounds of uh, the weapons being fired on a regular basis after you know after tea time at night after dinner, the the fighting would always start up in the trenches. Um, it kind of made you uh, desensitized to the activity that was happening in Afghanistan, uh, and we got into regular firefights over there. That um, if that was going to be your first time experiencing that. It could be it could be a, a moment of panic where you're, you're going to make mistakes, whereas coming out of you know multiple tours of Yugoslavia, um, those incidents, those events were basically the next step to your operational planning. Because um, you know what they say, it's uh, you know every plan every plan is a wonderful plan until the first bullet's fired. Yeah, or Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But uh, the the experience in uh, Yugoslavia definitely aided us in how we approached our tasks and missions in Afghanistan. There's no question about it. What about the war? Just being war hard. Um, that that's got to help. Yeah, it, it it did help. Because um, in, in Yugo, how long did it take you before you kind of settled settled in? Uh, to me, it was about two weeks when uh, before you weren't so wide eyed and flinchy, and you just kind of settled in and accepted it. Yeah, it'd be about the same. It'd be about the same time. Yeah, a couple of weeks, right? Yeah. yeah. And with Afghanistan, it was a little bit different, um, you know, because you, you do all the prep work uh, before you go there. Then you've got the, um, uh, you wind up going to Kandahar, you get your weapons issued, so on and so forth. You kind of climatize there for a day. Then you wind up going to Mazumgar. Um, you know, you do your handover with your guys. And um, it, 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 was all, it was all a nice steady progression. But the second you got there, uh, the, one, the one memory that I have that... Um, I'll never forget is coming into Mazamgar and seeing the sign at the front gate saying it's been, you know, so many days since the last rocket attack. It's been so many days since the last rocket attack. And that number kind of never got past one. Yeah. For the camp. It was just a daily thing. It was just a daily thing. So you're at a FOB? Yeah, we were at FOB, FOB Mazamgar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, uh, FOB is a forward operating base. So in, uh, when I was in Croatia, 
they were, they were all fobs. Yeah. You know, everywhere I was at was a, it was a fob. And then you have the main, well, except for Rastavik. Rastavik was not a fob. Rastavik was the main camp. Um, but, uh, everywhere that I was, I was only at Rastavik to build trailers. Right. Everywhere I operated was, uh, was a fob. And fob means that, uh, you're, you're in the middle of it. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're in the middle of it. Um, it's uh, it's a more active, uh, less secure, smaller, more active um, base of operations. Um, man, I never thought I was going to get into all this stuff, uh, <laughs> but, but but it's all right. It's okay. Sometimes these conversations need to be had. Yeah, they do. Um, for Afghanistan, like, what would be your preference, John? Um, one of the toughest things about a UN tour was the rules of engagement. I was in numerous, numerous situations where I really should have shot somebody. Kind of wish I had that opportunity, not because I want to kill anyone, but because that was the only way for us to be safe. You know, uh, a couple of really hairy moments where I should have locked cocked and, and let fly. Um, one time with the 50, that wasn't even a 50 gunner. I just happened to be the guy behind it at the time. So right. cross trained, right? Um, but, uh, we, we did op Samson, which is this big arm flexing and we had all the M one, one threes out. Uh, uh, and like, I don't know how many we had like a couple hundred. It was, it was impressive. Like the ground was shaking for fricking miles and, uh, it was like a rolling earthquake, but, uh, I was on the 50 and I don't know what little village it was, but we all came, went out past Rast, out of Rastovic and we we're basically, you know, showing off our giant dick to everybody to say, Hey, settle down. If you fuck around, you lay around, you know, like this, these, this is how big our dick is. So don't fuck around. That's what the exercise was. It was an arm, it was an arm flexing exercise, you know, just to keep everybody like, don't try it because we we're bigger. And um, as we're coming around this one corner, <laughs> all these drunk Serbs come piling out of this one house and uh, all discombobulated. And what's going, what the hell is going on? And they're all armed, you know, uh, one with an RPG, a couple AKs. And, uh, and that RPG, like just the timing of it just happened to be us, right? And it's pointed right at, right at me. But the rules of engagement, I didn't even have one in the spout right, on the 50, right? So I wasn't even cocked. And... Uh, and it was just that moment where, okay, I've got like a second to make a decision here. And what the fuck do I do? I don't know. <laughs> because if I caught, if I, if I load up and I hose these guys down, um, uh, like is my commanding officer, am I going to jail? Is this going to be an international incident or am I justified to do it? Because all I know is that there's a, a half a dozen guys pointing guns at us, including an RPG, which I really don't like. And it's aimed at me. <laughs> and I'm the guy in the 50, so it's kind of up to me to respond. But who goes first? So it was like a little game of chicken, right? And, um, well, it all worked out. I, I decided not to cock it, you know, because there's, there's so many of us. I'm like, he's not that dumb. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's suicide if he fires a shot uh, or this group fires a shot. It's suicide. Like they're just going to be soup. And, um, but they didn't, you know, they were just freaked out. So I'm like, okay, well I didn't kill half a dozen guys. That's good. 
And, um, but, but Jesus, you know, it would have been the right thing to do in any other scenario. Absolutely. In any other scenario, on any other tour, those six guys would have been soup. And, uh, which keeps everybody else safe because they never do it twice. Right. So with that story in mind, if you had to do, if if you're getting uh, deployed tomorrow and you had your choice between a UN tour with those ROEs, uh, rules of engagement or a combat tour, which would you choose? I would take the combat tour 100% of the time. Because what you what you just described is a, a classic example of every tour that I've been on um, outside of Afghanistan, and I mean even Afghanistan, we had our rules of engagement, and they were they were strict, but we were giving we were given the leeway to actually do our jobs. Okay, so Afghanistan, yeah, the exact same scenario I just painted for you happens. What do you do? How do you respond? We'd already be locked and loaded. Uh, well, first of all, yeah, that's that's number one. You, uh, you don't have a dead weapon, exactly. So it's already locked, loaded, and unsafe. So, so the, the big, the biggest difference between Afghanistan, from what you just described, and I've 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 encountered exactly to the letter what you just described on numerous occasions in Bosnia. Uh, yeah, and it know, sucks three, every time. Three tours. Um, so the tours that I did, uh, ninety four war. Uh, 97 um, peace treaty signed Mm -hmm. and the rebuilding of the infrastructure and then 2000 which is basically monitoring uh, illegal activity like we were doing uh, illegal logging uh, patrols stuff like that but in every single tour in the former Yugoslavia it was that conflict every time a weapon was raised or pointed at us that conflict in what do I do? Your, in your head, what do I do? What are the ramifications going to be? Am I going to jail if I pull the trigger? Like what? Like uh, I, I'm just going to basically wait till I get shot at. Yeah, that's a bad thing to be experiencing under any circumstances. Oh, the fucking sucks. So that conflict, um, that conflict in your head is a prime example of how crippling the ROEs were in. The former Yugoslavia. Well, our training is if, if you have a problem, kill it, right? Exactly. But now here we are, uh, we're in blue hats. If you have a problem, wait till there's a bigger problem. Yeah, and the vast majority of people don't realize that you don't train for the UN. No. You train for war. If you have a problem, kill it. And then you adjust to your situation, which is United Nations operations. Okay, that's great. But to get there, we have to train for war. So that mentality of, you know, kill or be killed is no, you do the killing when that threat is, is available. So in that particular situation, even in Afghanistan, if somebody had an RPG pointed at us, it depends on what that, what it is. Now, if that RPG is just sitting on a guy's shoulder and he's holding it like, um, like a, I don't know, like a backpack or something. Yeah. Well, there's no hostile intent there, but if he's holding that and looking down the sights and his hands on the trigger, that's hostile intent. And so, there's no hesitation. No hesitation. Hose him down. Hose him down. Yep. That would be, that would have been a justifiable shooting. Yeah. Um, because you didn't wait to get shot at there. Yeah. And that was the biggest difference. And in this case, we had uh, an RPG and half a dozen uh, rifles all at the shoulder, all pointed right at us. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and, and, you're, and, and, and you're still in conflict. And yeah. that is an example, a prime example of how crippling those ROEs were. Yeah, because there should have been no conflict. It should have been like, fuck you and let fly. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah. yeah. 
Like we've had, I've had that situation in Afghanistan where, um, you just fucked around. Now you're going to find out. <laughs> I've had RPGs fired at me. I had one sail right between me and my loader's head. Uh, like literally like a, like a giant baseball coming right at us. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a sketchy couple of, it was a sketchy couple of minutes, but, uh, in sketchy the end, is right. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, we just, we hit a landmine just before that with, uh, I was, uh, commanding the tank that had the rollers. I hate mines. So we got, uh, it was a double stack TMA six. Uh, which is an anti-tank blast mine. And, um, you know, that, you know, clearing the area, checking the equipment, so on and so forth, that took about 45 minutes to an hour. And the second we started rolling again, got RPG fire coming right at us. It was, uh, it was a hectic, hectic time, but there was absolutely no conflict like the ones we were just describing. Yeah, It was fight back immediately. There was yeah. no second guessing. There was no... What are my ROEs? It was. Am all, I going to jail? Never it a question. Was all self-explanatory. Yeah, yeah. Ne- never a question. If you're going to jail, there was one guy on our tour um, who remains unnamed because actually I don't know his name. Right. But uh, they'd get shot at every day at noon. Uh, a drunk Serb, or you know, might have been a Croat. I don't know, but a drunk local would uh, shoot at the OP every day at noon. Every day at noon, you know, just like clockwork. Clockwork. Get up. Uh, like yeah, cockle stay, and uh, splash all over the. Uh, you know, then you'd be out there duct taping the sandbags after, and um, yep. uh, you know, every fucking day. So it's like, can I please shoot back? You know, it, it goes to HQ, and uh, and they, they they write up the orders and everything else. It was like a great big brouhaha with the note: make it count. So he gets the C6 out, three boxes of ammo all linked together and melted the barrel the next time it happened. So um, he made it count, you know, um, belt fed three boxes together. And so that stuff did happen even on a UN tour, but it was, you had to be so careful. And, you know, for anybody that doesn't understand how important it was to kill that guy, that made everybody safer. Because you fucked around and you found out. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if, if you don't shoot back, it is way more dangerous. Way more dangerous. So they, they unleashed hell, you know, made, made him a little pile of soup at the other end. And, uh, and then the rumor mill gets around, Sir Bancrow at, don't fuck with the Canadians. You know, uh, they're real nice until they're not. So don't mess with those Canadians. And and that made us all safer, right? Because we're all exposed. We're all two-man patrols in the middle of a freaking war zone. Yep. You know, completely exposed, 100% uh, vulnerable, could get shot at any moment, uh, sit, you know, sitting there as bait on the top of a mountain for months. And um, one little event like that where you kill one guy, makes all of us so much safer. Makes them a lot less uh, bold to get all drunked up, get their courage up, and, and to storm uh, one of our OPs, which happened after our tour. Yeah, and, and, and again, getting back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, the fact that this was allowed to happen more than once, again, speaks volumes about the conflict and the crippling effect that the ROEs had. Yeah. Like, what, if somebody's shooting at your OP, and you've got to... Th- question your actions before you actually shoot back that should never be allowed to happen no could you imagine if that happened in your neighborhood here 
Oh, God. <laughs> well, one of the things, uh, when we were getting shot at on, on top of our uh, uh, mountain, our, in our little hot dog stand, uh, me and, so just two of us sitting in the OP uh, with the nodular, you know, the night vision and all this, and all of a sudden, pop, I'm like, I know that sound. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little pop above me. It's the same pop that you get in the butts. I always thought it was the the bullet going through the paper. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's it's not. It's the crack thump. It, it, yeah. It's the crack of the air pocket of the bullet whizzing over your head. And, you know, yeah, I guess the paper makes a pop. But, uh, no, it's the bullet itself making that pop because it's happening over our head. I'm like, that sounds just like when we're in the butts. Jesus Christ, we're getting shot at. He goes, yeah, I know. Don't duck. He's like, what? Don't duck. It only encourages them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yep. what it does right so they're like huh these canadians don't even know we're shooting at them they're so dumb it's like no no i know and then me and my buddy where do you think it's coming from fuck if i know i don't hear the thump i just hear the crack and i'm like well i must be in a house or something he's like i know where would you guess let's guess over there all right so i cocked my c9 pointed it at my best guess of where it might be coming from no no more shots. Yeah. So I totally bluffed it, right? Yeah. I cocked it, aimed it uh, at the most likely area, and uh, no more shots. Now, had I done anything else, right? Because somebody at the other one went, buck. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's got nerves of steel. Yeah. It's like, nah, I just know the game. You know, I know you're just trying to make me duck because you think it's funny, you know? Yeah, that happened a lot over there. That happened way too often over there. Um, I know the guy. I know in uh, the Visoko area, in between, uh, or, or, or bring it to you. Sorry, yeah. in between uh, Visoko and Chorley, um, a Chekarchichi, um, and Iliash, um, there was that bridge that we did pretty much all of our um, activity, and it was the it was the it was the border between the Bosnian um, Bosnian Five Corps, um, the Muslim organization, and then the um, Serbian uh, side of Bosnia. And, um, it it seemed like at dinner time, everything would calm down. They would have their tea. They would have a couple shots of Schlivo and right around five thirty, six o'clock, the shooting would start every single night, like clock. You could almost (laughs) set your, set your watch to it. It's like, it's like, um, uh, that uh, cartoon with uh, Wiley Coyote and the Sheepdog. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're buddies and they're sitting on the hill and then ding. Clock in. All right. Uh, let's get to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty much exactly the way it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, it was. And like, we're, we're, you know, like, yeah, no, let's not be enemies until, you know, a, after my lunch digests a little bit here, then we'll fight. Mm-hmm. And then that's how it was. Yeah. It but, was. Uh, it was an interesting. It was an interesting place, that's for sure. Um, having your hands tied the way we did um, made for. I think. I think that messed a lot of people up. Oh yeah, the ROEs, the rules of engagement, not being able to shoot when you're being shot at. Um, I mean, a little bit of it is the bloodthirstiness. I'll I'll admit it. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm a trained fricking killer. I'm an infantry soldier. Like, uh, let me get into a fight, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let me get into a scrap. So that, that, that is part of it. But, um, but mostly let me defend myself. This is fricking ridiculous. I'm walking around as bait 
all day, every day, wondering if there's going to be a bullet skipping out. Because that's what everybody's thinking. So you're kind of cringing, you know, like, man, is this Kevlar helmet going to do its job? This flak vest sure as hell won't, you know, yeah. and it doesn't stop bullets. You know, we didn't have the plates or anything, right? Nope, it's, just, it's just, uh, we were completely exposed. And um, so you're just always kind of waiting, you know, and, uh, and anybody that was driving hatches down and then tink, 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 which for those that don't know, that's the sounds of bullets yeah. uh, bouncing off. And then when they have a heavier caliber, caliber tonk, yeah. <laughs> tinks and tonks you're on the, the side the, of your carrier. The as it goes through your carrier. Yeah. Well, and, you're, and you're sitting there in the carrier hearing the tink and realizing you don't have the up armor. And, and you're like, oh, we don't have the armor plates yet. Um, I wonder if they're going to figure out that there, you know, a fifty would just whistle right through here. <laughs> you know, do they have a fifty? Are we going to get shot at by a fifty? Oh, oh fuck! <laughs> when uh, in '94, when I was there, I was um, like I said, I was driver and uh, close security for our battle group commander, and they gave us a, a Kevlar uh, armored Land Rover uh, to cruise around in. And I even, I even knew back then that that was, you know, it was only bulletproof to a point yeah, <laughs> for small arms and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, the, uh, a nine mil pistol, you're probably good. Oh, for, yeah. With a nine mil pistol, no worries whatsoever. Like, you know, I'd say you start getting to seven, six, two, and you might start seeing a little bit of damage or some penalty. Well, especially if they got, if it's full metal jacket, like it all is, yeah. it's like, it's like, Oh fuck. But I mean, our guys, <laughs> our guys in the APCs and the Cougars, um, that was that was some sketchy equipment to be bringing over into that theater, dude. You had Cougars, fuck you. Cougars. We had the M one one threes, so you win. <laughs> you know, uh, you win. We had the crappy M one one threes that were out of date then. You know, they were thirty years years old then. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, absolute. Crap. Oh, even 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 a Cougars. I mean, a Cougar was never intended to be a combat vehicle. It was a tank trainer. Um, yeah. It was just meant to keep skills up um, and you know you're looking at you're looking at you know uh the t-series of of soviet tanks that you're going Yikes. to be going up against and, oh no no there's no there's no there's no competition there it's like no we, we, fire, firing our 76 was like throwing tennis balls at a cop car you're just really going to piss off the other guy in the tank that's going to blow you up in a couple seconds <laughs> yeah jesus let's switch gears sure um so now we have a pretty good idea um about your attachment to first line kids that you founded. Yes. So these things, there's so many of us that when we get out, we look for a sense of continuing to serve and that sense of purpose and, and a way to give back. I do it through the show and you do it through first line kids. It, is it about one person? Was there one person in particular with kids left behind where you went, I got to do this? It was a, it was a series of events that occurred over a number of years that um, got me to the point where I decided I had to do something. Yeah. Um, ultimately, uh, this goes back a few years and has, um, it was shortly after I had retired in 2012. I wound up in a, um, a conference in Seattle and there was a retired football player that was a guest speaker at this conference. 
I, I wish to I wish to God I can remember his name, but it was his message that uh, resonated with me for all these years. And he basically asked the crowd. He said, "Can anybody here tell me the difference between success and significance?" And, you know, a couple of people automatically Google searched the answer and, you know, they gave a couple, uh, you know, Wikipedia answers to this, to this, <laughs> to this question. And he said, you know, he goes, those are all great answers, but let me tell you what the difference between success and significance is. Um, the biggest difference is your funeral. And I kind of got my attention. And I started paying attention closely to this. And he says, when you're successful and you pass away at your funeral, you're going to have people who are going to be there who feel obligated and maybe a few family members. But when you're significant and you pass away, your funeral is going to be standing room only with people that want to celebrate your life. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a, that's an interesting way to look at this. So that kind of stuck with me for quite a few years. Success. What did you do for yourself? Significance. What did you do for others? What's the hole that you leave when you're gone? Very much so, yeah. yeah. Um, and when these last few years for me have been very difficult uh, in the fact that I lost uh, my entire family. I lost my mother to a heart attack and uh, uh, three years ago lost my father to a um, a infect- like a stomach infection. Uh, literally within 48 hours of feeling some pain, he was gone. And uh, shortly after that, we found out that my brother was diagnosed with... Uh, a glioblastomic malform, which is a uh, form of brain cancer, very aggressive. And he managed to make it 10 months. Um, and I took, you know, I did three trips back to Michigan when this was all happening. Um, and I remember telling him the story years ago when I first heard it. And on his deathbed, I said, I just asked him, I said, Hey, Nick, so listen, we know where we know what's going to happen here. One, one piece of advice you're going to give me, what is it? And he said, just be significant. And that's basically when the wheels started turning for first line kids. Um, the event where first line kids, the concept of it, uh, came to life was when I was home the year before that, uh, the year before my brother passed away, uh, looking after my father and getting his house ready for sale and so on and so forth. Uh, it was the same time that the Nova Scotia mass shooting occurred and we lost our, uh, RCMP officer in that event. Um, and for some reason I couldn't get over that one. That one really stuck with me hard. And yeah. shortly after that, um, a few months later, we lost uh, a police officer here in Calgary. Um, and that one again, stuck with me very hard. Uh, most recently we lost uh, a police officer in Toronto um, now all these all these officers have children, and of course we lost our 158 guys in Afghanistan um, who have children. And the idea of first line kids came to life. Uh, we kind of sorry, I get <laughs> I get a little emotional when I talk about this. Of course. Um, so first line kids, the idea behind um, what first line kids is is a way to honor and show respect to the people that serve our society in the first line services and the first line services include uh, all, all members of the Canadian military, uh, all members of any Canadian police force, all members of um, the firefighting organizations across Canada, all emergency medical responders and nurses and healthcare workers. So 
basically these five services are the ones that keep us safe and secure and provide us with the health services to maintain a healthy life uh, and a safe life. Um, and then we believe that the old African proverb that it takes a village to raise a child comes into play uh, when we lose one of our members of these services. Um, I consider them all Canadian heroes when they lose their life in the line of duty. And what better way to show our respect and our gratitude for their sacrifice than to help them with their children. And the idea behind First Line Kids, our primary objective is to raise funds so that we can pay for the post-secondary education of any child who loses their parent in a line of duty 100%. And that'll include tuition, housing, tutoring uh, in the high school stages if required to help them achieve their goals. Uh, It will include um, their full tuition 100% all the way through, right up to the doctorate level if they want to continue. It's the least we can do to say thank you for their loss and their sacrifice. Does it include uh, people that die by suicide? Um, We've been struggling with that one. Um, It does, there are benefits uh, for the children who lose their parents to to suicide. Um, But at the same time, we've got to be very careful that we're not advocating that this is, you know, Oh. A way to get your kids looked after. Exactly. Because some of a lot of us are fall on the sword types. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah. uh, I agree. And I understand it. It's a very, it's because you want to, you want to respect on one hand, you want to respect that. Yeah. This is still a, uh, uh, in service death, you know, death because of service. You want to respect that. At the same time, you don't want to encourage it. Exactly. Yeah, I get now, it. Now, on that, on that note, we've discussed it in some great detail, and the, the children who lose their parents in a line of, uh, to suicide as a, as a result of their service uh, will have priority for grants and um, bursaries and scholarships uh, on a, a, as a secondary objective. So the primary objective is to look after the kids whose parents are lost in a line of duty, 100%. Yeah. Our second objective is to look after the people that are actually currently serving in those industries with scholarships and bursaries for their kids. Now, that'll be an application process, much like any other scholarship or bursary program. Um, and it will be academically um, uh, motivated or academically awarded uh, based on a child's performance, um, you know, community work, uh, volunteer work, so on and so forth. Uh, so that was that's more of a competition. And anybody who works in the industries is eligible for that. Now, the third objective that we have is creating a group, a series of programs that will actually help the kids achieve these goals and to help them with their grief once they lose their parent. So one of the programs that we're looking at doing right now is an equestrian grief therapy program uh, up in Stony Plain with a, uh, a a wonderful organization up there. We're in the process of developing that, so I won't mention any name, the names at this point, but uh, we're hoping that 2024 will be our first uh, iteration of that grief therapy um, program. Now, the kids who lose their parents to suicide will definitely be part of this program. Um, they'll, be, oh, they'll be eligible for this program. Uh, we want to make sure that we're not forgetting anybody or leaving anybody behind. Um, the second... Uh, program that we're trying to develop right now is a national peer support program. So kids that have experienced this and gotten through this, we're going to be recruiting them to create this network that anybody can access and talk to somebody who's actually been through some of these um, tragic events. We feel that 
that peer support is far more uh, beneficial. And at the same time, we're going to encounter a lot less barriers when it comes to, you know, provincial borders and licensing and so on and so forth. It's just people helping each other. And we've got some great, uh, great psychologists and uh, social workers that are going to be working with us to develop this program across the country. And um, we've got a couple of young people who have actually experienced um, these tragic events who are now stepping forward and saying, I'd like to be part of this. How do people find out more about uh, First Line Kids? What's your website? Uh, www.firstlinekids.com. Firstlinekids.com. Yep. Pretty straightforward. Who's some of your major sponsors right now? At this time, we are just getting started. This is a brand new nonprofit organization for okay. Canada, and we are going, we've gone live as of December, and I've had a couple interviews now with various organizations, Calgary City Police, um, fire departments, and uh, of course, being new, everybody wants to take their time and watch the development before they sign on board. There's a similar... Um, uh, I forget the name of the organization, but I just had them on the show, uh, about special operators. So uh, special forces uh, group that does the, the same thing in the States for um, uh, for the kids of those that have fallen that were uh, special forces. Right. Um, funny, it wasn't that many shows ago and I already forget the name, but it, it's so important so important what uh, what you're doing because those parents are no longer here to be able to provide. They're no longer here to be able to um, uh, to do that for their kids, you know, and uh, uh, college ain't cheap. It is not, and it's not going to get any cheaper. No, it sure ain't. <laughs> well, one of the things that uh, in, in, in the process of getting ready to launch this and getting incorporated and all the legal issues and everything else uh, a number we came across a number of organizations that actually do provide scholars some you know certain level of scholarship and bursaries for kids who have lost their parents in specific industries we've blanketed the um, the first line services uh, with the five I'd imagine you're looking for people to do fundraising for you. Uh, we are, actually. We've got a number of people that have volunteered already across the country. and uh, We're just uh, waiting for an opportunity to get started. What kind of fundraisers uh, are you looking to get done? Uh, to start off, we're going to be doing a couple silent auctions here in the uh, early fall. And uh, looking at 2024 for you know golf tournaments, um, just a bunch of, just a, any variety of uh, fundraising ideas. People are coming across uh, the country with different ideas, um, bottle drive, like right from bottle drives to golf tournaments to uh, uh, had one suggestion of a, an Academy Award night um, where they get dressed up and, you know, have a silent auction, but they watch the Academy Awards on a big screen. Um, so it's just a, there's a lot of people coming up with some great ideas right now across the country. Uh, looking forward to working with everybody. Do you know what the rolling barrage is? I actually do, yes. Have you uh, connected them to put your name in the hat as a... Uh a worthy charity to uh, to fund? Not yet. Um, I'm working with a number of uh, people right now, and I'm I've been, I'm, I'm getting introduced to the Rolling Barrage uh, in the next couple in the next couple months. Drop my name. I will. You'll get a good seat. Okay. Um, are there other organizations like the Rolling Barrage that are already up and running? They're already fundraising. Um, that you're going to try to ask to see if they can divert some funds to you because the, the one that's the easiest way, right? The, the, they're already making money, they're already fundraising, and they're looking for people to support. I'm 
slowly getting introduced to a number of different organizations, but my focus right now is to get the word out to the industry uh, across Canada. Like we're starting in Calgary and kind of creating a, a spider web network uh, across the country to let people let people in the five industries know what's happening. And our primary goal is going to be to get them to if, if basically fund uh, fund this program internally. Once you've been up and running for a couple of years, even VAC, uh, God bless them, um, Veterans Affairs Canada funds the odd charity. Like they 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 cut a pretty good sized check every year for the Veterans Association Food Bank, so that's good. Um, but you might be able to get some funds from VAC. Uh, are you looking at the legions to, see, to tap into that as well? I'm looking at legions. I'm looking at Veterans Affairs. I'll be looking at a number of different organizations across Canada. Um, right now, uh, my primary objective is to get the word out. Let people know and let them start uh, funding this internally. Um, I honestly believe that once once the word gets out across the country, that we're going to start seeing that trickle effect. Um, I'm not looking for the big $5,000, $10,000 donations. What I'm looking for is firefighters, police officers, retired members of the military, members of the military to just jump on board, hit that donate button, $5 a month, the price of a cup of coffee, the price of a cup of coffee every month, and we will create a sustainable organization that will help these kids. Yeah, that's the right way to do it. Like the um, uh, monthly subscription kind of thing. That is like, uh, that's what I have on on my show. Anybody that clips, uh, subscribe. I've only got one subscriber so far. But but still, it's uh, five bucks a month, you know, uh, 60 bucks a year. And it makes it easy to to support that way. But um, when you're building the type of organization like you're building, the, the monthly subscriptions are the most reliable way because you you know okay i have got ten thousand subscribers at uh at, at five, or five, ten thousand regular donors at five bucks a month i know exactly what my budget is i know you know and it's stable it's not feast and famine all the time exactly you know that uh, monthly revenue uh, stable monthly revenue is is huge for the type of uh thing that you're doing so that's that's perfect Absolutely. And I find um, um, my biggest concern when I first got started doing this was I, I, I believe that it would have been very easy to get, you know, a number of different big checks cut to, to make this work. I'm not worried about that. What I'm worried about. I mean, about, you still want them. I want, I want this to be a, um, an ongoing program yeah. long after I'm gone. And getting back to the difference between success and significance this is the one significant thing that I want to do uh, post-service. Yeah. I want to say thank you to the people that protect us and provide us with the health and safety on a day-to-day basis. Well, and the health and healing that you re- receive personally, you know, because, I mean, people like to brag about their success. I, got, I know lots and lots and lots of multimillionaires, right? Uh, not one of them have I ooed and awed about their car for more than five minutes. You know, like, hey, nice Austin Martin. Mm-hmm. Hey, nice Land Rover, you know, but... Um, so what? Like, it's cool. It's a neat, it's a neat trinket, but who are you helping? You know, uh, when you meet people at a cocktail party or a networking event, you know, oh, so what do you do? I I think I'm going to start asking, so who do you help? Who do you serve? 
You know, that's yeah. going gonna to be my question for now on, I think. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't, uh, like I said, when, when the... How do, how do you help people? That's, that's a good question, eh? You step up. In, I mean, uh, for somebody that you just meet at some networking event, you've never seen them before. So tell me how you help people. You know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good. I think you just have to listen. That's, but that's a good question. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely. a good networking question as opposed to what do you do? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, uh, I think deep down, everybody wants to do something significant. Everybody wants to do something to help their fellow man. Yeah. Um, but we just get, we get bogged down in this quagmire of, life basically uh you know taxes here taxes there um trying to you know trying to trying to keep your job in in, in this economic environment and people tend Just to trying, f- trying people, to survive people tend to forget about the need that's actually out there yeah. and i mean getting into a non-profit organization is a very it's a very uh it, it can be a difficult chore um like right now i think there's what 125,000 charities and nonprofits in canada alone uh, there, it, it's it, the the numbers are astronomical, um, and everybody is trying to you know squeeze that last dollar out of everybody else. And during this, like you want to call it a recession or whatever, but during this economic time in our country, it's uh, it's difficult to get people to open up and you know donate a couple bucks here and there. Um, so that's why I'm taking a slow approach to this and trying to get that monthly sustainable. Um, uh, resource coming in on a, on a, on a monthly basis. And if we can do that, we can help so many of these kids. And that's all I want to do is just make sure that they're not forgotten. And what better way to honor the dead? Honor, yeah. What well, better, because like, what parent isn't worried about their kids? What parent doesn't want to leave a legacy for their kids? And when they can't, because their life was cut short uh, in the line of duty, you're leaving that legacy for them. And when those children lose their parent or their guardian or um, that significant person in their life that's looking after them, there's a hole there. A and, big hole. And they're, I mean, the organizations will tend to look after their own, but our organization is dedicated and solely just wants to make sure that that child is not forgotten, that the sacrifice of that child's parent, that Canadian hero is not forgotten. And though it tends to be more military and police and in some cases firefighters that will lose their lives in a line of duty. Um, we've included the EM, uh, the emergency medical responders and the nurses and healthcare workers in this group because they are equally as important. They are the first line. Absolutely. They're, they're the first line that look after us. And though the situations won't be um, loss of life in a couple of those industries as relevant as the other ones, the secondary objective of our organization to help their kids with scholarships and bursaries is just our way of showing our gratitude and supporting them in their efforts to sustain us in safety and health. Um, it just, just, we just need to look after these kids. They can't be forgotten. That's, um, Sorry, I'm getting a little emotional here. Just no, thinking it's about good, it. brother. But I think I yeah. think we're about there. If if you want to help support John and and this incredibly important mission, firstlinekids.com, 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 and uh, reach out, do a fundraiser for them. 
uh, host or sign, can you donate? Is, is there a monthly uh, subscription option right on the website? On the website, yeah. Uh, okay, you have to sh- I'll, you have to show me that so I can I can put that on my website too. Yeah, first page. It's uh, you can donate five bucks a month. You can donate ten. Uh, I've got people uh, back in Ontario right now that are donating a hundred bucks a month. Um, Amazing. And it's like when I told them when I was back home last summer, telling them the story. They said the second you do, the second you know, I want to know. And they were the first, one of the first ones to start donating. It's it's incredible how when we tell this story, people are very quick to warm up to it and say, my God, why hasn't somebody thought of this before? And what we were talking about before the break, um, there are organizations, there are admirable organizations that want to help the children of our fallen. Um in various ways with scholarships and so on and so forth. Like I know Wounded Warrior has a scholarship program. Um, there's a number of different organizations that have scholarship programs, like the Canadian uh, Firefighters Association. They have a scholarship program. But in these instances, these are usually secondary, tertiary, sometimes fourth objectives and they're not, for the organization. And they're not wide and they're not, they're not deep. They're not um, like... It's like ask a three thousand dollars scholarship a year. Like that, that's all it is, and and, and it, which is great, admirable, but very admirable, very admirable. But it's uh, it it doesn't get a lot done. And in our situation, this is our primary objective, yeah. and we want to make sure that those children are never forgotten, and that their sacrifice of their parents are never forgotten. Yeah, one hundred percent. Brother, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Mark. It was my pleasure, and thank you for this opportunity. It was fantastic. It was great meeting you. Please support John and FirstLineKids.com. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels because sharing is caring.